Hello and welcome to MindQuest. I am your host, Miguel Morales, and this is Mission Control Center. Hello and welcome one more week to Mission Control Center, your one-stop shop for IT careers from recruitment advice. This week we interview Dr. Johan Strughak, CEO of Sparehead Management and founder of Internet Safety for Kids. He recently sat down with us to talk about the real human element behind cyber attacks and how he's helping educate children and parents about cybersecurity. Make sure to visit mindquest.io slash blog for the full interview. There you will also find an article discussing how summer downtime is the perfect time for you to work on your IT recruitment strategy. But without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Drew Hack. Hi, Dr. Drew Hack. Welcome to Mission Control Center. And thank you so much for being here with us today. How did your career in tech start? What do you do these days? My career started in applied information technology. And I was at first very interested in the technical part of that. Um, But I lost interest in the technical part when I noticed that technology keeps rotating and innovating and reinventing itself so fast that it's very difficult to keep up. And I started to get very interested in how can we build the bridges with the people using the technology and how can they keep up with this enormous pace of technology. Now, when I promoted in that, That is more than 30 years ago. And since then, the pace has only increased. But we have not really done a lot to improve how we educate people with technology. So that then became my mission, my goal. How can we work with that? So I focus mainly on the human element of technology. And I do that in the field of cybersecurity. I do that in the field of, of agile management. Um, I do that for digital transformation. With so much technical options available for digital transformation, and we say it is customer-focused, which in most cases is true, but we forget the people within the organization who have to work with all that technology in so many cases. And that is why I focus on, and that is why I found my drive, and that is why I also found... My purpose, because you need a purpose to get up every morning and do your breakfast or whatever routine you have and step into your work with a smile. So that purpose I found in building those bridges and helping people to be better prepared for the technology of tomorrow. And how exactly do you advocate for this human-centered approach to technology? I founded a company called Spearhead Management in which we literally take, first of all, the people, and, and start with education and coaching. And we do that based on an uh, approach in which we could call a gap analysis. Where are we today? Where do we want to be tomorrow? And yes, there will be technology involved, but how can we enable and empower the people in the organization to make that happen and to become part of that innovation, to become part of that digital transformation. And we do that through training, we do that through consulting, we do that through coaching. And the main objective of that is that the people make the difference. So our motto is embrace change from within, from within yourself, from within the organization. Be 
the organization that changes and not be the organization that gets a change because then the organization remains the same. I also use my, um, my voice on social media um, and I've been growing in the last three years. I started to actively use social media three years ago and I've been growing fortunately uh, very fast uh, in the last three years. And I use that a lot to point out what is the human element in cybersecurity, in digital transformation, what has gone very well, what has gone not so well, what has gone really, really bad. And one of the things I do is with my team, once a year we publish a report called The Human Element in Cybersecurity, and I do podcasts on that, I do keynotes on that, under the title the human elements in cybersecurity, and it's not what you think. And why is it not what we think? Because when we look at the IT community, there's a lot of focus on the user error. So you might get the impression that the user is responsible for all the cyber incidents. But when we look at the media, we get all the information about the bad vendors, and we get information about the vulnerabilities, and we get information about somebody was hacked and everything went wrong because uh, national, but when we look at the technical information about the cyber breaches, we see that more than 80% is the human element in the configuration and the management of technology. So the technical responsibility for technology. Now we should not take that and do the same thing by saying, ah, the IT experts are to blame because that's not fair and not correct. A lot of that is leadership decisions. We know in a corporation, nothing happens without approval and budget. So the IT guy can sit there and say, I have to update those machines. I have to replace that software because it's end of line. But when that person doesn't get approval and doesn't get the budget, I assume they're not gonna pay that out of their own pocket, right? So the human element is a lot more than just the actual failures that are make, made. The majority of that is leadership. The majority of that is completely failed risk management. And I use my social media channels and all my connections to put a long, strong focus on that. When we don't change the way we manage and, and lead, we will continue to have these issues. And that's my, my core message. What would be a textbook example of leadership failure impacting cybersecurity? The Colonial Pipeline, a very high profile case that has been all over the media. And it started with all kinds of theories about what would have been the case. And it immediately popped up that people were claiming that a user had opened up an attachment other people claimed that there has been a case of, uh, of social engineering through which all kinds of things popped up, but then the actual experts analyzed it and found that a VPN account, which lacked basic security measures and hasn't been used in a very long time, got compromised. That compromised account, including the ID and password, were shared on dark web forums, and that account was used for the initial 
breach of the network. And through that, they were able to escalate. Now, there's one thing that we have to keep in mind. There's an FBI uh, director who made a very interesting statement. There are two types of companies. The companies who have had their network breached by malicious actors and the companies who do not know that their network was breached by malicious actors. And that's reality at the moment. We have to assume that we are compromised and we must implement all potential and available countermeasures based on the assumption that we are compromised. Now, the colonial pipeline case shows us two things. We would identify that as abandoned technology. There's a VPN connection, which you're not monitoring, you're not taken care of, it hasn't been used for a long, long time. It is still open and available. That's one. And the second one, your mandatory almost separate segregation of, of network access and segmentation of the network itself and making sure that you cannot simply hop from one privilege to the next one. All that was not available. Your active monitoring, that you keep an eye on what happens in your network, and if you then, after five years, suddenly see a VPN connection pop up, you should react to that. Never happened. So for me, that is a schoolbook example of knowing what should be done, not doing that, having all kinds of interpretations which are not factual, and as soon as the actual analysis is there and publicly known, it is once again the basic step. And that is what we see in the majority of our research when we follow the three basic elements of cybersecurity. Patch management, access management, segmentation and segregation. We can prevent more than 90% of all the cyber incidents, but we don't. So it's also a, a schoolbook example of self-inflicted wounds because it would have been very easy to prevent, right? You're the founder of Internet Safety for Kids. Can you tell us a bit about this initiative? We create videos and content to enable parents and children to use the Internet in a secure and responsible manner. We do that with videos. We do that with cartoons. The kids love it. We get wonderful feedback. And the most interesting part is that parents write us that they're learning from the videos which they thought were intended for the kids, but we make them on purpose for the kids and the parents. It's a beautiful project. I love it. Uh, it's a lot of work and it's worth every, every hour that we invest in that. And what sort of cybersecurity advice do you provide in these videos? In one episode we created and the kids made the entire script from the beginning to the end. The kids came up with you have wonderful advice about we need to inform our parents about what we do and we should never hide what we do and we should always explain why we want to do it. But can you please be so kind to tell the parents that they should listen when we want to tell them something? And if we want to show them something, that they should actually take a couple of minutes? Because most of the time they say, well, not now, or I don't care about that, I don't understand this. Can you also do that? So we made this, ep this uh, uh, edition an episode created by the kids alone, and we didn't allow the parents to criticize that. That just focusing, focuses on, hey parents, yes, this we tell you what the kids should do, but you should have time for them when they want to do what we tell them to do. Talk to you, show what they do, 
be involved in what they do. If you don't understand it or you don't use it yourself, that's still no reason why you should not listen or pay attention to them. And that's, I love that so much. We had so much fun creating that. Um, but I think that brings it also to the point. We encourage parents and kids to learn this together, right? We create videos of roughly five minutes, uh, 20 videos. And it's not that parents give this to the kids and say, well, be busy, learn this. Sit down together, learn this together, and use it as a as a input for discussions with each other, right? Two weeks later, ask. And what we learn with the kids is that they're really actively involved in that. So they come back to the parents and they say, hey, um, I, I watched this video and look, I've done this and it looks good. And that's the coolest thing. Thank you, Dr. Drew Hag. Best of luck and until next time. And now, this is what happened in technology this week. Ransom-related DDoS attacks, or RDDoS, by which attackers release DDoS attacks on a website and ask for a payment in exchange for withdrawing, are on the rise. A recent study by Newstar International Security Council revealed that just in the last 12 months, 44% of organizations reported having suffered an RDDoS attack a larger number than those who suffered a traditional ransomware attack. The strategy makes sense for criminals, as it is way easier to launch a full-scale DDoS attack than to patiently infiltrate a system to install ransomware. Plus, 36% of victims paid the ransom, which points to how lucrative the model can be. And moving on to other news, a medical study led by researchers at the University of Cambridge is trying to see if artificial intelligence could help doctors diagnose dementia with just a brain scan. Scientists will spend a year training the AI to detect patterns in the brain scans to then launch a real-world medical trial across the UK. The hope is that the tool can lead to early diagnosis, which currently are the best chance to mitigate the adverse effects of a so far incurable disease. And finally, quantum computing's incredible potential relies on qubits and their quantum mechanics properties. But the same properties that make qubits capable of unthinkable calculations also make them unreliable and difficult to manipulate. At least until now, researchers at the University of New South Wales claim to have solved the roadblock of qubit control, whereas currently it is difficult to link more than a hundred or even a dozen qubits reliably. Their proposed method could control systems of up to 4 million qubits. The development should help speed up the advent of large-scale computing chips, bringing the computing capabilities of quantum closer to our reach. And that's all for this week. Make sure to follow us on social media. We're on LinkedIn at MindQuest Talent and on Twitter at MindQuesting. Thank you for listening and until next time.